What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempadar. And I'm Josh Larson. So this is my favorite trick. We present our guest with a plate of boschetti. And then I will say, why don't you eat some boschetti? Please, Nick, eat some boschetti. I didn't realize you enjoyed eating worms. That is the last time I have Thanksgiving at the Larsons. I thought you liked Piscati. That clip from What We Do in the Shadows, the very funny mock documentary about a trio of New Zealand vampires that played in limited release earlier this year and stands as one of our favorite underseen movies of the year. On this week's show, we revisit our review of Shadows along with a few more of our Overlook favorites and give you the shortlist for the 2015 Golden Brick Award. That's all ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. Over the years, you've certainly heard us talk about Squarespace. Many of our listeners have shared their testimonials. Now is the chance for you to try it out for yourself. Their sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level with no coding required. All their tools are intuitive and easy to use with state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. They're trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. All their sites are also responsive, so it looks exactly the same on mobile as it does on your desktop or laptop. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code FILM to get a special offer on your first purchase. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code FILM. You're listening to Film Spotting. We hope you haven't had your fill of leftovers because on this week's show, Josh and I start our look back on the year in film with our annual Thanksgiving Golden Brick preview. We'll revisit reviews for three of our favorite overlooked or underseen movies of the year and talk a bit about the films that have made the shortlist for the year's Golden Brick Award, which goes to the film that is deemed the most, I don't know, golden bricky by you and I, Josh, and by Film Spotting listeners. They get a vote as well. We have, over recent years, finally really been able to crystallize the criteria for what makes a golden brick. Do you want to share that with the listeners who may not remember or may not be familiar with this coveted award? Well, underseen and overlooked may be a little bit arbitrary, but these are certainly things that didn't make it to the multiplex Mm -hmm. in almost every case. We also like to think of these as coming from a new or an emerging filmmaker. It doesn't have to be a first film, could be, but probably not a fourth film for sure. Um, One of us here on the show has to have reviewed it or mentioned it. And we also look for films that show some sort of formal inventiveness or have a distinct vision and are especially ambitious in some Mm -hmm. artistic way. And with that, let's share a few of the past Golden Brick Award winners. So last year's was Blue Ruin from Jeremy Saunier. That was a very distinctive contemporary noir, sort of a neo-noir, and he has a new film that's been playing the festival circuit this year, actually, Green Room. Neither of us 
have seen it yet. No, but I've read the plot description and I can't wait to yeah. see it. It should just sounds be, like a fascinating concept. Should be in the spring where we get to take a look at that. 2013, this is probably one of the most definitive Golden Brick winners, I would say, is The Act of Killing, the documentary from Joshua Oppenheimer. We reviewed his follow-up, The Look of Silence, on episode 551 this year. And then in 2012, we gave the award to Wuthering Heights. That was a really interesting novel adaptation from Andrea Arnold. The listener's choice pick that year was Nuri Bilga Jelan's Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. And I hate to say this because it's going to sound like I'm knocking the film that we both had, I think, at number 10 on our respective lists of the films of 2012. But looking back over the winners, which include, for me, The Arbor in 2011, you had just joined the show, Dogtooth in 2010, the inaugural brick winner, Moon from Duncan Jones, the Sam Rockwell movie in 2009. Wuthering Heights is the only one that sort of stands out to me, Josh, as the one I wouldn't enthusiastically recommend all of our listeners run out and see. It's just not on the same level as the other brick winners. Yeah, for that's some probably reason. fair to say. But that's interesting that you did point out we had it that highly. So yeah. maybe it's one that just hasn't lasted in our memory. But if you went back and took a look, there's some great stuff there. All right, we're going to announce the complete shortlist later in the show for this year's Golden Brick. But let's get started with our first finalist, Buzzard. Comes from the young Detroit-based director Joel Petrikas. Comedy is probably not the right word to describe this often very bleak film, but it is funny. Also has one of the most indelible performances of the year in star Joshua Burge as Marty Jakotansky. One of the most indelible names of the year as yes, well. Yes, for sure. He plays a part-time office drone and a small-time scam artist, full-time misanthrope. Here's our review from March. Dude, what are you eating, man? Like a Milky Way mini muncher or something like that? It's gross, dude. Jeez, stand back. Jeez. You're going to get fired for that. You know that. I wish. You wish? Mm. Dude, this job is awesome, man. Dude, no, it's not, man. You paid nine fifty an hour? It's bogus. This crap mortgage company doing this crap work? F- Marty, from this job alone, I got like $400 cash at my house. What do you think about that? Dude, in this stack alone, 2000 That's the real deal. I'm tempted to say, Adam, that if you don't know a Marty Jakotansky at your place of work, you might just be Marty Jakotansky. It seems that every job or at least summer jobs or internships or temp assignments, these places where people are there because they have to be, not because they want to be, has someone who fits the Marty Jakotansky mold, played by Joshua Burge in Buzzard. He shrugs off his work, steals office supplies, spends his days on petty scams, like calling the complaint line for his favorite frozen pizza and talking his way into free coupons. Buzzard, though, written and directed by Joel Petrikas, takes things even further. Marty isn't just an unapologetic antisocial parasite. Especially after he tries to pull a check-cashing con that doesn't quite work, there are hints that real anger and potential violence may explode at any moment. We especially sense this in his treatment of his supposed friend from work, Derek, played by Petrikas, and in his decision to customize his video game power glove with Freddy Krueger-style knives. Petrikas and Burge do an impressive job of establishing a consistent yet unsettling tone in Buzzard, and the mixture of humor and danger, not to mention a surrealistic turn at the end, made me wonder, how seriously are we supposed to take Marty as a real-world character, as a representative of the disaffected and underemployed? Is he just a darkly comic goof or some sort of warning? And more importantly, if this conversation gets heated and comes to blows, do you want the toy lightsaber? Or the power glove with blades. <laughs> I'm definitely 
going to take the power glove with yeah. blades. They yeah. were pretty dull. Well, they were, but there's something that can be done about that as we do learn as we watch this film unfold. I don't know about a warning, Josh, but I do think that we should take him seriously, and that's because any acutely observed character portrait offers something to say and should be taken just as seriously, if not more seriously, than any movie that maybe more directly purports to offer a warning or some kind of message. What was Peter Labuse's line last week we referenced at the end of the show when we were teasing this review? I know you're going to hate that I'm going to open this can of worms, but he said, this is really the movie your beloved pain and gain wanted to be. Okay, an easy shot. But certainly, if you're going to put that Michael Bay, for me, abomination, forward as some kind of paragon of social commentary, which you do, I hope you found some of the same substance in this film Buzzard, because I think to Petragus's credit, the fact that he's not as preachy or preachy at all in terms of incorporating overt symbolism and references to the American dream like Bay, that doesn't mean he's not wrestling with some of the same concerns. I think, though, an even better recent comparison is a movie we both enjoyed from last year, and that's Nightcrawler. Most of us who really got behind that film saw through all the media stuff that hung up a lot of people and recognized it as more of a socioeconomic and generational critique. The way Lou Bloom, played by Gyllenhaal, litters his conversations with corporate speak and goes after everything he wants with reckless abandon, money, cars, respect, and he gets what he wants no matter what the moral or the ethical or the human costs are. And it occurs to me, who's Lou Bloom if not just a more motivated, more cunning, more ruthless Marty Jakotansky. They're both just barely surviving. All those scams that they're working, they're still just barely getting by in this world. And both movies, thankfully, only hint at their backgrounds, but there's this strong sense that they've both been dealt pretty bad hands, and they realize that the only way they can get by, that they can continue to survive, is to try to beat the house somehow. And I was thinking about this today, Josh, and I don't think you can answer it. I don't think you can try to objectively answer it because you have seen both films and you know what each character is capable of and how they end up. But I was wondering if you took, let's say, 100 people off the street who hadn't seen Nightcrawler or seen Buzzer, didn't know anything about the movies, you had them watch the first 20 or 30 minutes of the film, get a sense of each character. Which character do you think they would find to be however you want to put it, more likable, that they'd root for more, they'd find more sympathetic, have more respect for, Lou Bloom or Marty Jakotansky? That is a terrifying choice to have to make because you wouldn't want to be stuck in a room with either of these guys. No. And, but I do think Bloom is the comparison to make. I had actually forgotten about that pain and gain comment when I was watching Buzzard. And to be honest with you, it never occurred Probably to me. Probably not. I mean, I, they're different. They're just films. so, they're wildly different. But there is that underlying socioeconomic sort of foundation that they're built upon. Mm -hmm. So I guess I could see that. You don't have an but, answer, though? But Bloom, no, I think it would be Bloom. because Because here's, even though we talked about, and this was one of the great things about that Gyllenhaal performance, that when, even when he was charming, you could tell mm -hmm. that there, he was a little off. Yeah. He was either a little too insistent or a little delayed in his smiles. Mm -hmm. it, you always knew he was putting it on, even if somehow he managed to develop a little bit of charm. Marty Jakotansky is incapable of being charming and more interesting. And this is what I really like about Burge's performance. He's not interested in it. No. He knows that he's right in these cons and he shoves it, if you can call them cons, they're really scams. He shoves it in the people's faces as if 
they are committing some sort of crime by allowing themselves to be scammed. Sure. It's their fault. They deserve to be had. They deserve to be had. And maybe the, the best scene that is, exemplifies that is right at the beginning when he goes into a bank, another branch of the same bank he's working for, love that touch, and closes a checking account and then immediately asks to open one just to get the $50 enticement fee. And the teller just says, you know, basically, come on, man, you're wasting my time. And he... Marty gets pissed because it's not his fault that there's this loophole. You know you work for us? I'm a temp. It doesn't look good at all. It doesn't matter. There's also a minimum deposit required to be eligible for the promotion. Well, I happen to have $255.38 right here. Can I ask you once again what was wrong with your original checking account? It's irrelevant. So you're just trying to cheat the system? Absolutely. For $50? Absolutely. I love how Petrakis, in a number of instances in this film, will just hold on Marty. A long, extended take. This is a really difficult performance to pull off because there are not a lot of cuts Mm -hmm. in these scenes. And this is one of them. We don't see the teller's face at all. It's just on Marty as he goes through this scam and he's not going to back down. He doesn't care if the guy thinks he's a jerk, if he thinks he's a moron. He's not worried about being charming. So so if I had to make that, you know, who would people find more likable? I think definitely Lou Bloom. Uh, and and I also what I also like about that scene, which happens in a number of places, is because we don't see that teller's face, mm-hmm. we have marked Marty as a man apart. The camera has done that. He is literally physically antisocial. He wants nothing to do uh, with the engines and the people of everyday society. He's going to, uh, in my review, I talked about, I wish this wasn't named buzzard because it's such a great visual metaphor for how this guy lives. For sure. And uh, right down to the fact that his scams are so puny that it is like carrion, you know, it's like dead meat that he's terrible frozen pizzas are what he's getting for free. Um, But that's who this guy is. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you had to choose, you'd probably run from him more quickly. (laughs) Well, that's a great answer. I didn't really think about the charm aspect, and I do want to get a little more into that opening scene. But back to the question for me, I as well think the answer for most people would be Lou Bloom. And maybe it is the charm, but it is also because what you just said about Marty, that his sights are so puny in the grand scheme of things. Lou is ambitious. And Marty doesn't seem to be at all. He is constantly busy in that way. He He works hard. A slacker. He does seem to work hard, but his ambitions are set very low. He is content gaming these banks for $50 a pop on new checking accounts. But if you do compare the two characters, Marty starts harmless and only becomes more dangerous the more desperate he gets. Whereas Lou, right from that opening scene we spent a lot of time on, he's dangerous from the outset. Sure. And he only becomes more dangerous as he becomes more successful. But I think that a lot of people, and I found myself really weighing this as I was thinking about both characters, I had more sympathy for Lou almost because he's driven. And let's face it, America loves someone who's driven to succeed. And that may not be the right way to approach it, but I think that element is there, or we'd have to admit to that element being there in all of us. So I do think there's a lot to chew on with this film and observe, and you mentioned it as well. There's a lot to laugh at in this movie. Oh, absolutely. And keeping that balance is what 
impressed me most about the so many times I'll talk about a film's tone. Mm-hmm. If there's something that's just not feeling right to me, that that's the word I come to. And uh, we'll get to it later in the show, possibly, if I get to say a few words about Chappie, the Neil Blomkamp film, where the you tone will. is just a disaster. And here it's complete control. It's control in the performance by Burge and control in just how scenes are going to play. The one that's a good example of that is when Derek, the friend... They're in the party zone, which mm-hmm. turns out to be Derek's father's basement. <laughs> His at basement, first, yeah. You, you know, at first I, I held out a little bit of hope for Derek. It would I actually thought, be awesome. I, you know what I thought? Actually, I was like, wow, this guy's got a house? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of surprised me. And then when we see it and it turns out that it's his father's just basement. just got the I was disco like, ball, basically. That makes more sense. Yeah. And so, so this is where Marty ends up. And this also hints at there's a level of paranoia here. And I want to talk about this level as character as we get more into the fact of is he a symbol of some sort of group or is this a personal character study? But Mm -hmm. anyways, Marty has paranoia that this check cashing scam is catching up with him. He can't be in his apartment, so he crashes in the party zone. Uh, And they just do things that, you know, 13-year-old boys generally do, including this fight with the lightsaber and this glove that Marty has. And the balancing of that scene where you're laughing at them because they're being ridiculous but also you sense nothing really has happened yet with Marty except maybe some vocal outbursts, including at that bank teller. He gets very loud at the end of the scene mm-hmm. um, and some odd behavior, you know, wearing masks out in public. You're very aware that this could turn and go really badly at any moment, obviously because the weapon is there. But there's just something else in the overall tone of how they handle it that keeps you laughing yet really at unease. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film, Buzzard. It's playing at the Music Box here in Chicago this weekend. And you're exactly right, Josh. That brings me back to that opening scene. You talked about how that opening shot, I think it's kind of a medium close-up that just stays focused on Joshua Burge as Marty as he's talking to this bank teller. Occasionally, the bank teller's head kind of flits into the screen now and again into the frame. But in addition to establishing him as a man apart, as you put it, it immediately shows us his perspective, his point of view on the world without actually showing us what he's looking at, because we're only seeing him, but it exhibits for us that it's a him against the world mentality and that mm. this guy is just another nameless, faceless, corporate drone to He's got Marty. contempt for him. He does have some contempt for him, but that is where the performance really comes in here. And you've said a lot of this already, but in terms of how comfortable I think Burge is as an actor and how comfortable Jack Atansky is in his own skin, despite the fact that he is so disenfranchised and disconnected from the world, there is something he seems to be aware of and he's just going to continue using that knowledge against the world. Because as he's talking to the bank teller, there's that little bit of derision in his voice. There's some condescension as the bank manager half-heartedly at times tries to resist him. But for the most part, until the end, as you mentioned, where he gets a little bit aggravated, he, he keeps his cool. He doesn't really betray any fear. He doesn't betray any discomfort that you might expect someone in the situation maybe thinking, oh, am I going to get busted or where is this going to lead? There's none of that fear on his part. He just knows the system. He knows how to game it. And he's not going to be denied in this case. And so that balance in Burge's performance is there throughout the movie. And it's there in the humor, too, where none of these characters are ever playing the jokes. They're never trying to be comical. The humor is born from the character and the characters. And I feel like we're just that dialed into this main character because Burge is so dialed into this performance. And that opening scene as well encapsulates for me the whole tone of the movie because it's a combination of the mundane 
with this hint of menace that on a dime turns and becomes laugh out loud funny when we actually find out when it's revealed what he's there for all along. And so that juggling act that Petrikas manages here, you're right, it's so controlled. You know from the opening frame, the opening two minutes of this film, that there is a director in control. And I always enjoy watching those visions when you know that you Mm -hmm. are in control, that you know that the filmmaker is in control from the outset. And what can you do when you're that dialed in as a director and as an actor? You can get away with a scene. I didn't count it, but I should have of Marty just sitting in a hotel bed. He's essentially on the run at this point. Mm -hmm eating a plate of room service spaghetti that he's ordered. And you wonder if we're going to see him eat the whole plate. And we pretty much do. We pretty much do. It had to be two minutes at least, which maybe doesn't sound long. But when you're just watching, again, no cuts, Mm -hmm. a a guy spoon the spaghetti into his mouth, giant meatballs. It's just falling out of his mouth all over the white hotel robe that he's wearing. That can sustain itself. It's beyond just being a gag Mm -hmm. because Burge is also staying in character. Mm -hmm. He's watching TV. TV and you'll see moments where he reacts to something, not even thinking about the fact that he's eating like this. And, right. and that's, you know, it's it's funny and it's sad and it makes you a little worried about, like, is this guy losing any sense of even himself at this point or is this just how he eats? It is a recurring motif, we should say, of eating really unhealthy food in disgusting ways. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's pretty much a constant throughout the film. And there is this sense of dread. You've touched on this as well, that runs throughout the whole movie so that by the time it leads to a sort of conclusion, I felt that that inevitability, if you will, for me, that sort of creeping sense of the inevitable was really a strength of this film, actually. Knowing that it was sort of going to a certain place, it was just a matter of how it got there and how exactly it then all played out. You don't know what it's building to, but you know it's going to be interesting when it happens. And I do think that that sense of dread is what heightens the humor as well, because it makes the jokes that are there, ultimately, that much more surprising and unsettling, that contrasting of tones. Yeah, and I I guess I would say that the inevitability is a good word for it because you do get to a point where you feel, well, this has to go somewhere, and we pretty much know where it's going to go because of the hints. Uh, But what does work for it is... You question your laughter then at that point when right. things start to start to go wrong and you question, OK, um, what have I been laughing at and why have I been laughing and am I laughing now? If mm-hmm. so, why? Why not? So that gives an interesting element to it as well. And I did think, you know, there is a scene where things do go wrong at a payday loan bank Mm -hmm. and it's by no means on the nose, but I think that is the one point in the movie where the economic element of this comes to the fore. Marty challenges the owner of that payday loan bank, essentially saying, Hey, you're running a scam too. Mm -hmm. We're, we're all just doing our own thing. And and it's kind of like, okay, you know, I I see what's been bubbling along. I didn't sense the director really imposing anything there though. So much as I saw that is just his pure desperation and anger in that moment, that that's really him lashing out with the most intelligent thing he can come up with. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess it is the only instance in the film where you see him having any sort of manifesto. Yeah. Maybe if that makes sense. And I liked this thinking of this guy as someone just without a manifesto, even though he may represent one, mm-hmm. if that if that makes any yeah. sense. So but it also when things get unhinged, it also made me think th- this is a question I want to circle back to. He is certainly this representative of, again, the underemployed, the disenfranchised to a degree. But is this also a very acute and it could be both could very well be both 
character study of someone who's suffering from a real mental illness. And I say that, especially keeping in mind the final shot, which we shouldn't discuss, but As I mentioned, it it gets a little surreal. There's an earlier shot we can discuss, which I think has the same tone. It's when he's riding a bus, I believe. And all of a sudden we see him. He has a collection of horror movie Halloween masks. Which he dons from time to time out in public. I think that's the first time we see him wearing it in public on the bus. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like a quick cut of the same matching image of him wearing the mask. And then it cuts and he's not. That's right. And and I thought at first, okay, is, is he... In his mind, is that how he thinks he looks? Is that how he wants to look? Or did he really put it on? Later on, there's a shot of him at a movie theater That's right, yeah. where he's wearing it. And so then I felt like, okay, he does wear this out. But but it's just this first hint of something that blossoms a little more at the ending where you're wondering, have we maybe transitioned more inside Marty's head? Yeah. And, and that, you know... Like I said, it can be both. I like that, that it mm-hmm. might be operating on both levels as a character too. study and a wider societal yeah. statement. No, I don't think there's any doubt that at some point we recognize him as a real fractured soul, that there's a real sense of a fracture in his identity. And I would love to get into the closing shots of this because I think there's a real haunting provocative coda to this movie, yeah. but we would be spoiling things a little bit. I also would love to get into more of a discussion with you about that final showdown where things really become unhinged in terms of how you read it. We can't get into it here, but maybe in our bonus content. Sure. If you have the Film Spotting app or you go to filmspotting.net and click on apps, we can get into some of that spoiler talk. I would love to get into that here. Yeah. How's that? Yeah, well, he didn't even tell me he was coming into town, so... Oh, whatever. He's busy, I know. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just tired. You know, work. No, come on, I've been good about it. No, I don't even act like that anymore. I'm happy now. Everyone really likes me. From March of this year, our review of Joel Petrikas's Buzzard, the first of our 2015 Golden Brick finalists. Buzzard is available to rent via most streaming platforms. And yes, we did record some spoiler talk for bonus content. You can find that by clicking on the apps link at filmspotting.net. If this golden brick decision ever came down to a street fight, Marty Jakotansky's custom power glove would come in handy against the eccentric vampires of what we do in the shadows. Our next golden brick finalist review is next. Stay with us. I wasn't trying to fool you or trick you or hope you would pretend. Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. 
More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hi there, listeners over at Film Spotting Prime. Allison Wilmore here from the Film Spotting SVU podcast, where on our latest episode, Matt Singer and I wonder whether TV has taken up the mantle of the romantic comedy genre as we take a look at Aziz Ansari's new Netflix series, Master of None. And since it's every film critic's favorite time of year in which we cram like it's finals to catch up on everything we missed before we make our year-end lists, we'll be recommending some movies that might have fallen through the cracks but that you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. Welcome back to Film Spotting and happy Thanksgiving weekend, everyone. We get right back into our Golden Brick preview now with our second Golden Brick finalist, What We Do in the Shadows. It took seven years, Josh, but a mockumentary finally made the Golden Brick shortlist. It's very much in the Christopher Guest vein of mock docs in the film. An unseen documentary film crew follows a trio of Wellington, New Zealand vampires who are also real world style housemates in the months leading up to an annual gala called the Unholy Masquerade Ball. It was co-directed by two of the film's stars. Taika Waititi and Jemaine Clement. Clement, likely the more familiar of those two names. He's one half of the comedy duo Flight of the Concord. So from February of this year, here's our take on what we do in the shadows. It's been like this the whole time. Deacon on dishes and it still hasn't moved in five years. You're a cool guy, but you're not pulling your weight in the flat. Oh, I'm glad to hear that I'm cool. No, that's not the point, though. Yeah, yeah missing no, I the know. Point. Not the I know. flat meeting about how cool you are. When you get three vampires in a flat, obviously there's going to be a lot of tension. Viago was an 18th century dandy. Look, a ghost cop. Vladislav is a bit of a pervert. This is my torture chamber. Deacon's like the young bad boy of the group. I'm supposed to pay rent, but I don't. Setting up our Selma review a few weeks ago, Adam, you referenced listener Max O'Connell's rules for making a good biopic. I think he shared those on Letterboxd. I'm going to steal that concept for starting our conversation about what we do in the shadows and see if we can also settle on a few essentials for successful mockumentaries. Coming from some of the minds behind HBO's brilliant and sadly gone musical comedy series, Flight of the Concords, What We Do in the Shadows purports to be one of those confessional, fly-on-the-wall reality television series about a bickering family. Only here the subjects are four New Zealand roommates who happen to be vampires. So aside from the vampires, we're in fairly familiar territory here, from Albert Brooks' Real Life to Rob Reiner's This is Spinal Tap, to the comedies of Spinal Tap star Christopher Guest. I'm sure we'll be getting into a lot of those in our top five lists of mockumentary moments. Thinking about all of these together, I found a few common elements that seem to make for a good mockumentary. Keep a straight face is a good rule of thumb. Never let the audience in on the joke. Never wink. Just don't pull aside that curtain at all. Gather an ensemble and give them space to each live into their own little story. There may be one figure or a couple who rise to the fore. Usually I find it's the ones who make me laugh the most. They may not get the most screen time, but I think of it then as their movie. Yet everyone still has enough time to do something. Leave room for improvisation. That's where real life is best mimicked. If these sorts of movies are ever going to capture some sort of sense of real life, even though we know it's fake, it's when things get improvisational. And one more here, embrace the awkward, embrace the uncomfortable. 
because I think mockumentaries can get at the truth in a very unique way. And usually that only happens when things start to get a little squirmy for the actors on the screen, for the characters on the screen, definitely, and for us in the audience. So would you agree with these criteria for mockumentaries? And if so, would you say what we do in the shadows meets most of them? Yeah, I think it probably meets all of them, actually. And I do think that's a good quartet of rules for these films. Of course, it helps. You mentioned some of these like real life and this is Spinal Tap. If you have brilliant people like Albert Brooks and Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer involved, that's usually good, too. Casting. I don't know. Casting yeah. is essential. You know, that's you're part saying. of the ensemble. And <laughs> I don't know many of these performers. I didn't really watch Flight of the Concords that much. I've seen bits and pieces here and there. I know Jermaine Clement is very talented, and that comes through here. Reese Darby, I know a little bit from that show. He's a supporting player here as the werewolves. the werewolf pack. The werewolves, not the swearwolves. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the good bits from the movie. So I'm on board with your rules. And yes, I'm on board with how this movie obeys those rules. And the best thing I can say about it, we don't often review comedies here on the show. It's hard to dive in so much. We were joking about this before we started taping that what makes comedies tough to review for us anyway is that you basically just want to get into a back and forth about all your favorite bits. Uh-huh. And that, that doesn't maybe make what we do. Yeah, well, that doesn't make for the best listening experience. Well, probably. deconstructing comedy is uh, gets old pretty quickly, that's, too. I mean, that's a good point. It can be interesting to a certain point to explain mm-hmm. why one movie on a subject is funny and another isn't. But after a while, it's like, OK, just laugh. Yeah, absolutely. And the best thing I can say about this film is that not only did it make me laugh, but I think it's subtly funny and that jokes do sneak up on you. It's not often the broadest humor you might expect watching a vampire mockumentary. And I know that if I had the time to watch it a second or a third time, I will probably see 10 jokes at least for sure that I either didn't see them visually or I just didn't hear them because I was probably laughing at something else or I wasn't smart enough to get the joke the first time around. This movie, speaking of Spinal Tap, has the funniest line ever, I'm going to say, in the history of cinema involving the word sandwich. <laughs> since, Marty like DeBerge, one, huh? <laughs> since Marty DeBerge asked the Spinal Tap guys for their response to the two-word review of their album Shark Sandwich, <laughs> this movie may even top yeah, I think I like this Shark one a sandwich. little bit better. That's how good this line is. This movie is worth seeing just for that bit delivered by Jermaine Clement. Well, and because he has, I mean, he just, it's one of the most impenetrable deadpans yeah, we have it. in comedy right now. And he de- he delivers it that way. And the camera waits and just rests on him and gives those extra pauses to let it sink in. You're waiting for him to crack or, or to pursue the joke further. And he just lets it sit there yeah. and do its work. Uh, my favorite, though, might have been... Uh, Let's derail for a moment here. Who let Peter out? I I like Peter was my favorite. I yeah, think. he's and Nosferatu. He's Nosferatu, and that's probably why it's a sentimental choice for me. He scared but me. We that's part of it. Though. Just seeing that he's, face scares me. He is he is creepy. And yeah. there's a scene where a victim is running through the house trying to escape. That also works as a horror scene. I mean, it's. It's funny when you see. He doesn't Jermaine, seem scared enough. <laughs> the guy running, no, but no, he kind of is slow. Yeah, but and also when you see Jermaine Clement's face appear on a cat all of a sudden out of nowhere, that I love those bits. Kind of takes a little bit out of the scary factor. But but there are elements in that scene that do make you you know a little bit on edge. They they have an affection, and I think Shaun of the Dead worked this way too. They have just enough affection for the tropes they're playing with in terms of horror films that you you can sense that and it bubbles up too. But the the thing that I liked about it as a horror fan is how they were very careful, 
each of these four characters, as I mentioned earlier in the tease, to to pull from a specific vampire type. So we yeah. do have Nosferatu, and Clement is sort of the Lothario Dracula. But my favorite— Well, he's Vlad, too, so he's he makes Vlad, you think He gets the torture of, element. Yeah, he makes you think of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes. And, yeah. yeah, very much, very much uh, the, the Gary Oldman style. But my favorite might be Taika Watiti in terms yeah. of who's the heart of this film, if I think we can he say that. The movie, yeah. I really think he does. And I, I you know, I'm not familiar with him— I I saw he also made Eagle versus Shark, mm-hmm. which was a little heavy on the core. I didn't see that. But but I thought it worked overall. Also starred Clement. And here, as this aristocratic Lestat-style vampire who's so polite, trying to keep this house in order, yet a bloodthirsty killer at the same time. What, what he gets so well, and I liked about the film overall, is how they mimic the reality television format perfectly. And he captures, if you watch reality television series early on, when the people, the star element hasn't quite gotten gone to their head and they're not performing yet for the camera. They're still kind of dazed that a camera is following them. Yeah. He kind of just has that sheepish, embarrassed yeah. grin like, oh, you guys, you guys are watching me. Mm-hmm. And, and he plays that throughout. He also has one of the more interesting storylines in that he moved to New Zealand to follow this girl, what, maybe a hundred years ago or so. No, maybe not that it old because she's, she's still alive. Right. <laughs> she's still alive. And he genuinely pines for her. Right. And, you know, no one's going to shed any tears, but it does echo a little bit last year's Jarmusch film, Only Lovers Left Alive, where there's this sense of longing yeah, and melancholy. exhaustion yeah. and melancholy. But but how do these guys meet that? Well, the Deacon character, the one who's the lost boy, he, he does a belly dance for them to pass the time. <laughs> yeah. And I love YTT's and Clement's observation of that. They're just like utterly bored. Like this has been going totally. on for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> The neighbors can see you flying around the house. You want to draw attention to this house, hmm? You've got a whole documentary crew following you around. I'm doing an erotic dance for my friends, and you ruined it. I was in the zone. My friends are loving it. I, love it. I saw the end of it. It looked great. I don't, I don't know if I'm, being, if I'm accepted yet, but I don't know. I think it's getting there. I know they're old and stuff, but they're quite naive when it comes to the real world. So, I don't know. It'd be cool to just hang out with them. They can teach me some stuff. I can probably teach them a few things you're listening to film spotting we're discussing the new vampire mockumentary what we do in the shadows and if you're thinking i've never even heard of this film well guess what up until about a week ago we really hadn't heard of this film either but it has been garnering a little bit of positive buzz and it sounds like here we're both pretty happy that we saw it you know the other reason why you think taika waititi steals this movie josh that's because that's who we are in this scenario <laughs> if we were both of us living if we in the were, house if we were oh. 200 to 800 year old vampires living with two other vampires we would be the one you're so walking right. around cleaning up after you're everyone so else right. we'd be holding the the house meetings trying to make sure everybody's following the Put rules the newspaper down before putting the newspaper down the person's neck one of my favorite bits in the movie i mean that's where this film really does succeed is that it takes all these things and i've thought about this before i've always thought, i'm sure someone also has thought of this or done a parody of it but you ever wonder about james bond in the moments where he isn't james bond where james bond just has to be a normal guy right. who has to use the bathroom or do those kind of things that all of us do but you would never see in a film mm-hmm. well here we get these vampires who 
they take care of all those things that you never see in a vampire movie. Like, okay, so what do you do when you live in a house and, you know, you're going in for the kill and, you know, you can't just have blood shoot everywhere. So he's trying to woo her, but at the same time subtly put down yes, the newspapers yes. so that so that he doesn't make too and big again, of a mess. he's so polite. He's like really trying to listen to what she's saying. and that, That's it. That, <laughs> right. I mean, acting like he's genuinely interested as opposed to just using her for the piece of meat that she is. But you mentioned reality TV and we've talked about other vampire movies those elements are there but i think what was refreshing about this movie for me is that mockumentaries typically are a showcase for some satire or parody that's what they're mocking i mean they're making fun of something and they're usually making fun of something that comes from real life well vampires don't come from real life we only know vampires from vampire movies and vampire literature but i don't think that the humor here is really derived at all from our familiarity with those movies yes absolutely the four main characters kind of fit a prototype but they don't go out of their way to draw a lot of attention to that i mean there is one lost boys reference that's really funny if you know the movie The Lost Boys, as I do. And there's even, I would say, do you think I'm wrong that there's a direct riff on a non-vampire movie, Inception, when two vampires get into a fight? Two vampires get into a fight in a hallway, and they end up fighting on the ceiling, and it's like a lo-fi version of It's a lo-fi version, but it's pretty good. It's not bad. And that's another thing about this movie. The special effects here, well, maybe Clement's face on the cat is is a little dodgy, but when there's that bat battle when two yeah. of them turn into bats i mean that could hold up in any hollywood sci-fi I or fantasy film i was surprised the production value doesn't just extend to those special effects but also as you were mentioning the old literature and the old paintings where they sort of photoshop oh, themselves the into shots, it, the yeah. insert shots those are obviously really artistically rendered they are and they could have just said you know we're going to just do a pure spoof of reality TV and we don't need any of that kind of stuff to give it some weight and sometimes, but they do. sometimes the shoddiness in a mockumentary is used as part of the yes. joke yeah. and, and I think that can get old yeah, even I if it's too. funny at first and here down to the production design everything is is, is fairly elegant and I, I think that is speaks to another aspect of this movie it doesn't just rest on its concept at the beginning of these four guys living together it adds a few more characters including a new vampire who kind right. of threatens Deacon because they wear the same jacket. Exactly. And and he gets this added subplot. Or or Stu, Stu played by the IT guy. <laughs> Stuart Rutherford, who's just this tag along human and they think is pretty cool. I don't know why the guy doesn't say anything. I know. He's just always there. Maybe it's because well, he's he not a threat. Them, he helps them with their computer. And he does help That's them. That's true. I forgot about that. He helps them do their dark bidding <laughs> <Yes>. on eBay. <laughs> and so they're like, well, Stu's pretty useful. So they let him hang around. And that could be just a single gag, but they develop it where, you know, yeah. they go to this masquerade ball where there are zombies and, and Stu becomes yeah. threatened. Everything kind of builds on each other. So it's not just repeated gags over and over. Exactly. I, I thought to my, you might think when you hear this, sounds like a great Saturday Night Live sketch. And I don't know if many seasons of SNL could make this work for three minutes. They would generally go back to the same joke. No, that's a good point. Ten times. And this, they keep finding new ways to make it funny. That's true, though. If you read plot descriptions and summaries of this movie, they make it sound a lot more plot heavy than it is, as if these characters really are going through some kind of narrative arc. On the journey. I don't think, yeah, I don't <laughs> think that's really here. It is more like a collection of scenes, but it fits together so nicely, and they do keep finding new riffs on the humor that it does pay off and i think what's that vampire the new one is it nick i think his name is 
that other touch, one of the funny moments for me, is when he first becomes a vampire and he flies into the house. <laughs> Another oh, one of those yes. moments where, like, yes. think about it. If you were a vampire, they're like, no, really, you can just open the door. Just use the door. It's like, no, but I'm a vampire now. Of course I'm going to fly, even if I have Very to enter. Poorly. Yeah, poorly, and I'm going <laughs> to enter the room awkwardly. It's still worth it because that's what vampires do. I do really like those touches. And you mentioned Only Lovers Left Alive. Hard not to think about this movie in connection to that in some ways. And one of the things we discussed was how that was this take on vampire movies that, as we said, isn't really about riffing on those vampire movies at all, but it's about reapplying the myth of vampires in some way. And for me, I wonder, tell me, Josh, if I'm overthinking this too much, but the one thing I'll say about this movie is it does seem to be taking that myth. And the reapplication here, if anything, is really about male bonding. It's about groups of male friends and how they interact with each other. And whether you're 17 or 70 or 170 or 700, those dynamics, this movie says, don't really seem to change, right? You're always going to argue about who's doing the dishes or not doing the dishes. You're going to have challenges to the group dynamic when someone else is sort of taking on your persona or someone new enters the group. The encounters with the werewolves, not swearwolves. As we said, they're this rival gang of creatures, but they're struggling with their own group dynamics and how to respond to the alpha male. And maybe if there is any kind of challenge to shows like True Blood and maybe Twilight, which I haven't seen, so I can't really comment, is how when the testosterone gets flowing here, they basically just hiss at each other and rebuke each other strongly (laughs) verbally, but nobody actually wants to fight. I love that element to it. So again, I don't know that there's a whole lot of real commentary on psychology here or or groups. But there's no doubt that that's what this movie is yeah, about, is these male friends. There's sort of a bromance element to it. And th- those hissing fits, <laughs> the wire work is pretty good, too, Again, going back to the effects. Every time I got angry at you during a review, I wish I could just... <laughs> Can we get some wires in here? I could elevate here? slightly. <laughs> that, would, that would really make things Wouldn't interesting. It? When I was torturing, it was because I was in a lot of pain. I mean, obviously, they were in a lot of pain. But I hurt here in my heart, whereas they were just in their neck, chest, and genitals. I still haven't figured out how to levitate. We still haven't had our first bat fight, Josh. It's only a matter of time, really, though. Wasn't that Spectre? (laughs) Oh, not close enough. No. What We Do in the Shadows is currently available on DVD and available for digital purchase on various platforms. The Golden Brick preview continues in a moment with the 2015 shortlist and our review of Michael Fassbender in Slow West. Stay with us. No talk of the movie, just reviewing Michael Fassbender.
Hey, Film Spotters, Adam here with a quick interruption as you are about to hear our complete list of the Golden Brick nominees so far this year. Not the finalists and certainly not the winner, but some of the different candidates that were kicking around. And as I was traveling back to my native state of Iowa for Thanksgiving, it occurred to me that I overlooked one film that I really think needs to be in the conversation. When we taped this episode, I had completely forgotten about the fact that I caught up with it just a couple weeks ago. And it's the film Diary of a Teenage Girl. Back in September, we were discussing some recent fall movies that we had caught up with, and at the time I hadn't seen the movie, much to the chagrin of listener Stan Cordry in Houston, Texas, he wrote in and said, I enjoyed your fall movie review episode, but there's one more film I wish you would include it in your roundup of recent movies. The episode's set up for this movie so well. You mentioned the Golden Brick Award, Adam discussed this year's crop of great leading performances by women, and you had Michael Phillips sitting in. I'm talking about Diary of a Teenage Girl. I saw it earlier this week and really loved it. The film sounds like it could be creepy. A 15-year-old girl discovers sex and loves it. There's a lot of sex and quite a bit of nudity, but none of the film feels gratuitous or exploitative, nor does it condemn the lead character. Belle Powley, 21 at the time of filming, plays the lead brilliantly and convincingly. In his very positive review, Phillips describes all this much better than I have. This would make a great Golden Brick nominee, a fine film by a first-time director, that's Marielle Heller, and it could use a boost. Sony isn't putting much behind it, and it's a tough sell, a period piece, 70s San Francisco, whose natural audience, girls 13 years old and up, not accompanied by their parents, watching with dad might be especially weird, is out of bounds, what with the R rating in the U.S. and a rating of 8 no one under 18 admitted in the UK. Thanks so much, Stan, for writing that in. When I did get that email back in September, I was bemoaning the fact that I hadn't caught up with it yet, but recently was able to see a screener. And as I said, really do feel like it needs to be part of the Golden Brick conversation. I encourage everyone to check out Michael Phillips' review. We'll link to it in the show notes. He gave it four stars out of four. And now we can consider Diary of a Teenage Girl officially Golden Brick eligible. It's okay. There will be another birthday. If you'd like, we could look for something that it's not so much in demand. The bed would have been perfect. Uh, would a human toilet be a suitable compromise? Really? Well, I really have to go now. Oh, wait. Don't you want to hear about this? You're listening to Film Spotting, and yes, you heard that correctly. She said, human toilet. That's from the Duke of Burgundy, another one of the finalists for this year's Golden Brick, our Overlooked Film of the Year Award. Boy, I was really looking forward to catching up with the Duke of Burgundy now. (laughs) Here's what I love about our listeners. (laughs) Just the other day, we got an email from someone who, on my recommendation, sought out and just caught up with the Duke of Burgundy and had nothing but praise for it. And immediately, whenever we get those kind of emails from listeners, I think, yeah, the human toilet movie. The movie where that's a thing, she just wrote in and said, no, you're right. It's a really fascinating film. I love how open-minded our audience is. So we touched on this earlier in the show, but some of the criteria as we're considering movies that are finalists for the Golden Brick Award, they're movies that weren't mainstream productions. They didn't play at the local multiplex. You could call them overlooked. They were reviewed on the show by at least one host. They often are made by new or young filmmakers, and we hope they show a distinct vision and artistic ambition. So let's cover 
the whole list here, the short list of nominees, starting with the movies that we've both seen and can recommend. So those are Buzzard and What We Do in the Shadows. And one more we're going to get to here. A few that only I've seen, The Tribe, that's from Ukraine. It's a feature debut from director Miroslav Shabaspitsky. And Tangerine, this is a fifth indie feature. So stretching the definition a little bit here, it's from director Sean Baker. New name to us, though, and hmm. most listeners, I We'll believe. allow it. The Tribe and Tangerine, both movies I still need to see, but I've been a busy guy. Apparently, while you've been watching movies like Freaks, trying to get prepared for our recent top five dramatic ensembles list, I've been catching up with Golden Brick contenders. The Duke of Burgundy is one, the third feature from director Peter Strickland, who also made Barbarian Sound System. The documentary Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine, the debut documentary from Michelle Josu. Wild Canaries, the second feature from Lawrence Michael Levine. Love and Mercy, the debut from director Bill Polad, longtime Hollywood producer. This is the movie about Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. The documentary documentary Meru, which played at the Music Box here a couple months ago in Chicago. It's about these big wall climbers as they try to scale the shark's fin on Mount Meru in northern India. The Men, the debut from director John McGarry with Josh Lucas, a very dirty Josh Lucas in that movie, and Heart of a Dog, Laurie Anderson's experimental personal essay movie. One other we could throw in, speaking of what we'll allow and won't allow, we do at some point need to have a final ruling on whether or not we'll allow Phoenix from the German director Christian Petzold. It turns out he's 55 years old, and he has made more than one or two or three movies. He is definitely a veteran filmmaker, but... He only came on the scene for me with a recent release, Barbara, that he got some notoriety for. And then this film, Phoenix, is the first one I've actually seen from him. So it's going to stretch that criteria a little bit, Josh. But otherwise, Phoenix certainly fits everything we look for in a Golden Brick nominee. And we do have one more for the shortlist. It's something we caught up with back in May, Slow West, from director John McLean. He's a first-time director, but he did have a previous career as a musician with the UK's The Beta Band. The big draw with this revisionist Western was its star. That's film-spotting madness champion Michael Fassbender. He plays a mysterious gunman who comes to the aid of a naive young Scottish man who's come to the American West to track down the woman he loves. From May, here's our review of Slow West. Rose, my love. Jay, my Romeo. Once upon a time, Jay Cavendish traveled from the cold shoulder of Scotland to the baking heart of America to find his love. A jackrabbit in a den of wolves. Arms abroad, boy. Sir, I'm Jay Cavendish, son of Lady Cavendish. We're all sons of bitches. Keep heading west solo. You'll be dead by dawn. I take care of myself. Sure, kid. You need chaperoning. Let's drift. Well, speaking of a lack of preparation, despite having a full week off with the great Tasha Robinson from The Dissolve capably filling in for me, here we are to discuss Slow West, and I don't have the usual intricately crafted setup for you, Josh. You just I just watched saw it. this. I literally just you, saw it. You had like I barely know what I think weeks. about it. I know. I know. And you wait till the day of the show. That's really a discussion I'm for glad to know. Time. I'm glad to know I'm a priority for you. <laughs> well, here's what I'm going to give you. This is, we've said it now multiple times, a Western, though a Western shot in New Zealand, written and directed by a first-time filmmaker, a Scotsman. It's a film starring 
an Australian playing a Scotsman. He's a 16-year-old kid who comes over from Scotland to seek out his true love, who, as we learn from some flashback sequences, fled Scotland and is on the run with her father in the American West. Of course, it also stars an Irish-German, that being Michael Fassbender, who plays the loner, the gunman outlaw that Smith McPhee's Jay comes across, fortunately, in that moment, actually, as he does probably save his life. Pretty simple. Jay pays him some money to get him safely to where his one true love has established a home with her father. One of the things that struck me watching the opening credits of the film was seeing Michael Fassbender's name as an executive producer on the movie. So presumably this wasn't just a case of someone bringing him a script and making him an offer and him saying, okay, yeah, I'll do your movie. But he had an interest from the beginning in making sure this film got shepherded through and did make its way to screens. Now, it may have been because he has some kind of prior relationship with the writer-director John McLean, who was previously probably best known for being in the beta band. He formed that band and also the band The Aliens. He's made a couple short films, and Fassbender starred, I believe, in both of those films, including 2009's Man on a Motorcycle. So he had that element. But beyond that, what do you think, watching the film... And thinking about it as you have, because you prepared much more than I did, I've been Josh. thinking about this for weeks. I know you have. What do you think drew Fassbender to this material? Did you get a sense watching it beyond simply it hopefully being a good script? What was it that spoke to him about this character and this material? Why did we need another Western? Well, first of all, you're telling me there's nothing American about this Western, essentially? I mean, I... I Say it's, it's true. Must be thoroughly inauthentic. Ben also inauthentic stars. Then there's he's no, Australian. You know, American West, and there's nothing American about it. I don't know how I feel about that. Why did Fassbender want to make this? I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he likes westerns. Maybe it was the McLean relationship, uh, and, and the story itself. I do think you can see him in this performance being playful and having some fun with what is an iconic Western character that he's taken on here. The lawless man on his own, the man with no name, uh, the mystery outlaw. And that was fun. I think you even get the cigarillo. Is that what those things are called? I think so. That, that he's smoking a lot of lot of Eastwood affectations without this getting outside of the story. No. I think he keeps it within the frame of the story, but you can tell that's on his mind. He even says kid a lot. Yeah. I thought I was watching Unforgiven. There's a little bit of a twinkle to this performance, which I thought was enjoyable, you know, to see him doing that. Uh, I don't know that this will go down among the great Fassbender performances. He doesn't even really have the most screen time, I would say. I think it's very much a supporting part, but it is it is fun to watch, especially if you are a fan of his. I, that is the question. Why another Western? We talked about this when we did our Sacred Cow review of Unforgiven and how in this now really post-revisionist era of Westerns, what do you do now that they've been thoroughly deconstructed? Maybe the bravest thing to do is just make a straight up, straightforward Western. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten some of those. I think 310 to Yuma not too long ago was along those lines and was enjoyable. This does just enough, I'd say, to justify itself as an idiosyncratic approach to the genre. And there are a couple of things McLean brings to it that we can talk about. The one I'd maybe want to start with is what struck me right away is that there are dollops of magical realism in this film. Not a ton of them so that you would call it a magical realist Western. 
but just little touches here and there. And the first one is when Jay is lying on his back looking at the stars in the sky. He's pointing out the constellations to himself and then points his gun at stars and pretends to fire. And what happens is each star that he's been pointing twinkle at a twinkles a little bit, gives a little glow. So I thought, well, that's an interesting touch. And there are a few other things here or there that essentially reinforce this idea that here's a stranger in a really strange land and there are almost metaphysical slash spiritual elements to this world that neither he nor we may fully understand, but it is part of the experience of being in a new place and being out of place. So I appreciated that touch that McLean emphasized in the film. Yeah, I did as well, though, without getting into all the specific cases you may be thinking of. I'm not sure... I see it so much as magical realism. I think that opening scene, looking at the stars, certainly that's the director imposing a touch. You could make the case that, of course, that's the perspective of the kid looking at the sky. And so he sees him with that little extra bit of twinkle. But it's certainly not really happening. There are other cases throughout the movie that I'm not so sure there isn't a perfectly practical, physical explanation for. But there is something about the way this whole movie is constructed and it having a little bit of a lyrical dreamlike quality. And there are actual dreams. That may be it too. There are some dreams, there are flashbacks. So all of that together, including that outsider sensibility that you get in the form of that main character, but also everybody he sees, you joked about this, but that's one of the things I really appreciated about the movie was that so many Westerns really are about, of course, the Americans who move across the country and kick the natives out. And so all we get are usually some Indian characters and we get the cowboys, the outlaws, whoever. Think about how many people throughout this film you meet, even if it's just for brief little spurts, who are clearly from another country. Sure. They really do represent this melting pot that, of course, America truly was at the time. I can't even keep track of all the different accents we hear in the different foreigners we meet in this movie. Nobody is home, right? Uh, they're all from someplace else except for the people who are home and have been home there for centuries. They're the ones getting kicked out. Mm -hmm. The movie is very attuned, as many Westerns have come to be, very attuned to the experience of Native Americans, even though it doesn't provide us with a Native American character that we get to know. In almost Every third scene, there is some sort of illusion if it's maybe Jay walking through a burned down camp of Native Americans mm -hmm. after it's been attacked or another scene where someone comes flying out of the forest on foot and there are men hunting him. And we just get this throughout reiterated the fact that the only people at home in this land are the ones being moved out. Without a doubt, I really did appreciate that. And I think you're right as well to note the way almost like we talked about with the movie Cinderella, where all these revisionists, the fairy tale, the Western, whatever, maybe it is now almost revisionist to just play it straight. I think this movie pretty much does that. But I think that one of the things it's really successful at is both not overly romanticizing the West, while at the same time, clearly not trying to demythologize it completely or make references to a lot of other movies, despite the fact that maybe we can't help but see a little bit of Eastwood and what Fassbender is doing. It's as if the director and writer here, McLean, as well as the cinematographer, Robbie Ryan, and there are just some gorgeous shots in this movie. Absolutely they beautiful. Except the grandeur of the West, the hope of the West. And the grandeur is part of that, right? It's what brings you out there and constantly gives you that sense that despite what 
travails we're running into and how much we're toiling along the way, it's somehow going to lead to something better. And this movie really does get that right because what you have in the form of these two characters who meet and I guess you can say befriend each other, get to know each other and share something of each other along the way is you have one character in Fastbender Silas who is completely numb to it, who no longer sees the grandeur in nature, in the West, in anything around him, just sees it as desolation and desperados out there trying to take what belongs to him. So he's going to try to get his. And then you've got the character of Jay, the 16 year old who still sees that grandeur, still sees that wonder. And home is exactly right because that is literally where he's trying to get. He's trying to get to this house where he's going to hopefully be united with this woman he pines for. And so that sense of eventually settling down, finding whatever it is you're looking for, that same dream. And a character says that at one point he meets this character, Werner, out in the middle of nowhere. I love this and scene. I do too. And he asks him what's coming from the east or what's back east since that's where he's coming from, Jay. And he says, what about the west? And he says, dreams. Dreams and toil. But that's what's there. And so the Jay character fits perfectly within that scheme because he's not out looking for his fortunes, but he does have a similar dream. And based on the flashbacks that we get in terms of setting up their past relationship, it truly is that. It's a dream. It's this dream that has probably just as much folly attached to it, even though he doesn't see it, as those people who are heading out west to try to get rich. Yeah, and I like that reading because it helps me a little bit with one of the problems I had with the film is the interaction among characters. I think Smith McPhee gives us a good grasp on this kid. He has this sort of pale delicacy. He's so vulnerable in this environment, and we come to really worry about him. Fassbender, we've talked about, has a very firm grasp on Silas. Uh, I like how he plays him also as a bit of a Sam Spade, a film noir character, in that he's, you know, he has just a little bit more scruples than all the lawless people around him, and yeah. that's what's going to get him in trouble, is yeah. the fact that he holds to those. <laughs> he even so, uses I, the match the same way he a hard-boiled detective would. He does. So individually, these are really rich characters, but going to your view of this romantic relationship, Mm -hmm. the interactions between the characters, I didn't feel quite as thick, either between Silas and Jay, that bond we were supposed to get between them. I didn't quite feel it as much as the narrative needed us to. And the bond between Jay and Rose, I certainly didn't. Now, your reading of those flashbacks makes sense to me in that, in a sense, it is this idealized version in his head of what they had together and maybe explains why I never bought that. And especially when it comes to the climax, because I think what happens is that is an expose of the dangers of naivete, Mm -hmm. really. And it comes from naivete in entering a strange land, in dealing with strangers and in what it means to love and be in love. So, again, I do think overall the movie could be stronger in the character interactions, but maybe that explains a way a little bit of it. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new Western starring Michael Fassbender, Slow West. It is available not just in limited theatrical release, but if you are curious about this movie at all, want to know what we're talking about, it's available via video on demand as well. I know cable on demand certainly starting this weekend. So it is a movie most people out there listening can probably get access to. And really what I'm getting at, I think maybe we read it a little bit differently, though you're kind of on board with where I'm going. I actually think that it's not at all those flashbacks the way he perceives it. I think it's a sly rhetorical touch on the part of the director to make those very much objective. Because if you watch the flashbacks, it's not so much 
the character flashing back and imbuing these scenes with more love and more tenderness than they really had. It really is the director playing them pretty straight and pretty flat and saying, yeah, that's true. you know what, this kid thinks he's in love with her and that she has those same feelings for him. But if you go back and watch the scenes, it really is maybe a friendship at yeah, best. Yeah. And again, that adds to that sort of sense of folly and that sense of humor that the director has throughout. You even do get in touches like where there's a little pause as they're going through the woods and they come across a man, I think it's a Native American, who seems to have died because he chopped down a tree yes. and then the tree fell on him. You know, the fact that the director takes a moment for them to consider the folly of that and to actually see that despite all the killing that happens in this movie, and the movie does draw a lot of attention to that. I wonder if we'll get there at some point. There is a lot of it. Some people in this world still die because of goofy accidents like that. They die by their own hand because they just don't know what they're doing gets back to your notion of naivete. Yeah, we talked about before we got started here whether this could be described as a comedy. I know that Tasha last week when she was on the show with me said that it struck her as that a little bit. And uh, I said, well, I think I only laughed out loud once. That wasn't the scene I was talking about. Actually, I do think it's funny, but I was thinking about the scene where the way it plays out, it stretches out, is very tense and then ends with a punchline. They're standing in the middle of the woods and all of a sudden Jay sees a figure through the trees and doesn't realize that it's a Native American taking aim at him with a bow and arrow. Yeah shoots him in the hand and then these other two Native Americans jump out to steal their horses but the horses have a rope tying them it hits a tree and the guys go flying I mean it's almost slapstick it is and and Fassbender's reaction to it too is very matter of fact just kind of like this could happen to him every day out here in the west this is just what happens a nice touch there in in allowing the the Native Americans to be a threat too to them so it's not just this sort of hippy dippy um, viewpoint on what is happening to them as a people, it also recognizes that they're part of the danger of this area, too. So, yeah, there there definitely are some comic touches in this film that work really well. And I wanted to get back to what you're talking about in terms of the use of landscape. For me, it emphasized it, and maybe it's because it was New Zealand and it's not what I'm used to seeing exactly as the American West as this alien landscape that, uh, you know, certainly Jay is unfamiliar with, but even I felt a little bit unfamiliar with. There was a lot of attention paid to, maybe it's just because they're different plants that I didn't recognize, but the flora in this movie, Mm -hmm. I think of the scene where they're coming through this, it appears to be a desert, but then there's this prairie with these purplish blue flowers sticking up almost directly upright, and it looks like it could be some imagined vision of an alien landscape, although they, of course, look very much like Western figures and the cinematography in the climactic shootout between a number of parties, all everyone converges and it comes together. And one of the areas here is I think it's a wheat field. It Mm -hmm. looks like some something has been planted and it's about maybe two, three feet off the ground, just brilliant gold. And one figure uses that as a hideout. The sky behind them is completely blue, Mm -hmm. brilliant blue. And it just has this sort of idyllic Western peacefulness. And then maybe here comes some of the comic irony is that here is where the majority of the movie's bloodshed unfolds. Yeah, that's, I think, a good reading in the sense that it's almost this oasis, this potential for a sort of utopia, this home out here amidst all of the cragginess of the landscape at times. It's really gorgeous. And yet it is then broken completely by all the bloodshed. And I think 
the phrase you used about it being matter of fact in some ways, that's what I really appreciated about how that whole bloody showdown unfolded because it's really not mine for melodrama at all. It's very quick. It's very effective. And actually the better word for, I think is it's purposeful. You know, everything happens because it needs to happen for a reason. Certain characters go down because they need to go down and they need to go down in the way that they do. And the director isn't lingering necessarily on all of the different dynamics. At the same time, there is enough attention paid to some of those exchanges between characters that do add up to something ultimately but the sense of purpose to it i think is really in keeping with the rest of the film because it applies to for example fastbender's character in terms of the way he views the world right i like the fact for example when he sort of rescues jay again at one point he finds him out in the middle of nowhere he's been robbed of all of his things he's just wearing his pajamas basically his undergarments and a blanket and he comes across him again and the kid says to him, here, this is the rest of the money I got. Just get me to where I'm going safely. Well, that's the deal they struck originally. The kid right. decided to get a little smart, and it backfired against him. And as you're watching it, you're wondering, well, why would Fassbender's character even come back for him? Well, he'd come back for him for that very practical reason, because he knows the kid still has some money. And if he can get that out of him by then getting him to where he needs to go. He knows the kid isn't going to turn on him this time and he's going to get every cent from him that he needs. So there's always a sense of practicality and a sense of purpose to how these characters live. And I think it's matched with the direction, especially at the end. What does this movie linger over, though? It's something that a lot of Westerns don't, a lot of films don't, that include violence. And that's the bodies of those who have been killed. This movie had a really striking coda to me. That I'm sure it's been done in some form before, but after the action is concluded, it pauses to have a still shot, almost a tableau framing of the victims. And it goes further than just that scene, either after we've seen those victims or maybe before, but it goes back to the beginning of the film. And I believe every yeah, literally everyone who dies who has been of the killed movie. in this film in a violent act, the movie goes back to and just rests on for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And it gave the ending uh, the feeling of a wake almost, you know, like, yeah. like you're back there to remember and just give some sort of honoring to. And, and I don't know how maybe that does or does not lend weight to the violence of the Mm -hmm. film, but it did for me. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. It's really remarkable. And you're right. Maybe a film has done it before. Maybe a Western has even done it before. But something about by the time you get to the end of the film, and I don't think we're spoiling anything to say, it ends on a happy note, despite everything that we've said. And despite the fact that in some ways it's not a happy ending, I think ultimately you have to see it that way. And yet, because McLean gives us that, Reckoning with all those bodies, you see the count along the way. It really makes that even more seem earned somehow. Yeah, it makes no, it that's all a good feel like it isn't just about eventually things work out or they don't work out for certain characters and they do for others. But it really is about recognizing, especially if we're going to equate it like I want to, with that hope of progress of the West and the dreams that you're hoping to realize. Yeah, that's great. What happens when you do get there? But what was the cost along the way? The movie literally makes you think of the cost. Yeah, it recognizes the cost and it also doesn't rub your face and it's like some sort of, oh, you've been enjoying this all film long. Well, Mm -hmm. now take this. Remember what you've been enjoying. It's not that tone at all. No, it doesn't feel that way. it's It's holding everything in tension. Yeah, I do agree with you that I think It's surprising the movie is only 84 minutes long when you consider that they certainly could have done more with the Jay and Silas relationship. There's a point that maybe 
again, isn't really a spoiler because you kind of see it coming or else you know there's not going to be much of a story, where they do end up on the same side, where he ultimately isn't just there as a mercenary for Jay, but they've developed some kind of bond, except... I don't know that we really ever feel like that bond is earned. No, I don't you know, feel we there's, did. Yeah, there's something interesting about that character, Silas, because at one point he seems absolutely merciless enough that he recognizes that the only way he's going to survive, and that's what this is all about for him, is if he doesn't take on any baggage, if he isn't empathetic to what's around him and really does just keep his eye on moment to moment what he needs. At the same time, then, the movie kind of asks us to see something more in him that would explain why he would sort of turn and all of a sudden be on Jay's side. Is it really because, as he says at one point in the voiceover, he just sees the world differently? Is there something about him and his spirit that's so easily able to transform Fassbender's character, or is there truly something missing? I mean, is the director maybe asking us to to buy in a little more than we can? I think this might go back to my understanding of magical realism elements and it has to do with Jay and his effect on the land. I don't think it works because then I would have felt that relationship and that reasoning be stronger, what you're talking about. But I think what was attempted is that Jay has some sort of effect on people. There is that other scene where he comes across a group of men in the middle of a field who are singing together for no reason. I mean, I I suppose they could be on their own journey and they just pause to sing. Uh, But they're singing the song. Jay passes them and they ask him, in French, I believe. Yeah. Do you like our song? And Jay responds in French. Now, we've been given no reason to suspect why he may know French. We get a sense he's from the upper class in Scotland. Maybe he was taught See, yeah. French. And there could be reasons right. to explain it away. But but it's very odd that it would come up here. And certainly these men could be from a French-speaking country. Right. So, so yeah, you could explain away. But it was also sort of this – it goes back to what you were saying is that Jay might have had an effect on Silas mm-hmm. in some way. I, I feel like he does have that sort of uh, different connection with this group. And he has this – he's in touch with this world as bizarre as it is to him. In a way, he makes some sort of connection to it. I feel like we're supposed to understand. Now, does the movie do a good job of making us buy Mm -hmm. that and how it works on their relationship? I'd say it falters a bit there. Yeah, that's it. You're right that that sequence is interesting where he comes across those men singing because at first you think – this doesn't make any sense at all. This is absurd. But then when you do learn a little bit more about his character later and realize that he was from the aristocracy where he came from, he probably was versed in a language like French. But I think back on it, Josh, and I remember the way Fassbender's character rides right by him, pays them no mind at all, almost as if you could argue, yeah, he doesn't know if they are there. So I love that there is enough of that ambiguity in the film that you can latch onto it or kind of play with it in your mind. But does it really explain enough the bond those two men eventually have? I'm not sure that it does, even as I like the fact probably that it doesn't over explain the bond at the same time. I wonder if you thought at all about another movie Cody Smith McPhee starred in the first movie I think any of us saw him in. I was thinking about The Road a lot as I watched this movie. I had forgotten he was in that. Yeah, he's the boy in The Road, which is another movie about survival at all costs. Everybody in this landscape, now it's a much harsher landscape and it's not shot as beautifully. There's no sense of real grandeur to that hellish dystopian landscape that we get in The Road. But again, this one character who has a sense of of hope about him, who's trying to look to some kind of future, trying to stay alive while everybody around him is just out for themselves. 
I thought about it anyway. He's somewhat of a similar figure in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. That's the one I oh, thought good of him point. in. So, yeah, yeah he's, he's apparently getting typecast, maybe. Maybe he is. I know why you need my help. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You're lonely. You're a lonely man. Sure, kid. Sure, kid. Let's drift. A silent, lonely drifter. You're a lonely, lonely man. If you want to catch up with Slow West, it's currently available on DVD and via digital rental on most platforms. That wraps up our Golden Brick preview. If you want to see the complete shortlist, look for the Golden Bricks link under Top Fives at filmspotting.net. We will announce the Golden Brick winner at our live 2015 wrap party on January 9th at the main stage here in Chicago. More information about that live show coming soon. Out in wide release movies that opened on Wednesday here of Thanksgiving, Creed, the Rocky spinoff, The Good Dinosaur, the latest from Pixar, are Victor Frankenstein with my guy James McAvoy as the good doctor and Daniel Radcliffe as Igor. In limited release, Legend, you can see Tom Hardy in his dual role as 60s UK gangsters The Craze and in Jackson Heights from Frederick Weissman. Highly recommended if you have seven hours. Yeah, you did see it at the Toronto Film Festival, though I believe you did step out and take care of a few chores and then came back and finished it. I drove it. back to Chicago, <laughs> and picked made up it something, and then see came the back for the fun alley. I do love Frederick Weissman, one of the best documentary filmmakers. Next week, an interview with film critic and director Kent Jones about his new documentary, Hitchcock Truffaut. That's a documentary about the legacy of the influential book of conversations between those two iconic directors. Plus, we'll have a blind-spotting review of Hitchcock's The Wrong Man and share our top five film books. It sounds like it might be the nerdiest film show ever, Josh, if we do our jobs right. Hey, that's what we do. <laughs> Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week, we heard Chance Jones from the album The Incident at Primrose and West. Chance Jones is fronted by Buzzard star Joshua Burge. More information is at chancejones1.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempadar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. Sorry, I was reading ahead. <laughs> <laughs> or, or possibly falling asleep. Or passing out. <laughs> Here we go.